0: Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Psalm 82? Psalm 82. We've been studying the book of John for quite some time. We're going to take a break for another two weeks. We, of course, looked at some other stuff with Christmas. And um, as we think about the new year, I just wanted to bring a short little series out of this psalm. I'll give you a little bit of explanation of that a little bit later in the message as to why. Um, This is not one of those psalms that's nearly as well known as other psalms. You know, if I asked you, what is your favorite psalm? It might be the 23rd psalm. Uh, It might be the 25th Psalm. You know, you have your psalm that maybe has just been very meaningful to you in in your life and um, that God has probably used to encourage you at various times. Uh, If I asked that question of people in this room, you know, what's your favorite psalm? I doubt if any of you would have said, I just love Psalm 82. (laughs) It's kind of obscure. Actually, when we read it, you're probably going to be asking yourself, why in the world are we studying this? How does this fit with the new year? And I hope as we go through it this week to kind of set the foundation, it will really help you understand where we're going for next week when we tie it all together. But I want us to see how important this concept is, what we see in the 82nd Psalm. We live in dark days, don't we? There's craziness out there. Uh, I had a brother visiting with us this week. It was good to see him. My older brother, haven't seen him much in the last 30 years, and he stayed with us for a few days and really had the opportunity to connect with him, and he's an attorney down in South Carolina, and he does a lot of different stuff, um, defending. He used to be a prosecutor. He was a prosecutor for about 30 years, and now he's a defense attorney, so he's kind of wearing the, the other shoes, and he's had some interesting cases he was explaining to me and really kind of some... Amazing things that he's involved in. One of the things he's doing is he's he's doing a lot of Title IX stuff at, uh, I think it's Clemson University. And uh, he just said, Tim, it's crazy. It's crazy uh, what's going on with the transgender stuff And, and the kind of stuff that he's having to defend and how he's trying to. And you look at what's going on in our country, you look at what's going on in the world, you look at events, you look at philosophies. Beliefs that are undergirding our system and are undermining it. And and so many times, uh, one, one of the questions I've had repeatedly in the last probably four months for many people is, why do people hate Israel so much? Why do people hate the Jews? I hope that as we go through this study, we can get a little bit of a glimpse behind the scenes at some of the things that have laid foundations for all of the darkness that we now see in our world, that we can expect as we get closer to the Lord's return, will only get worse. So let's read the psalm, then let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer, ask His blessing, and we'll jump right into it. Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he is holding judgment. How long, now this is God, how long, speaking to the gods, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, Selah? Give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And then he is speaking of humanity here in general. They have neither knowledge nor understanding, they walk about in darkness. All of the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall perish, and you shall fall like any other prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for your inheritance is all the nations. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, as we come before your word today, I pray that, Lord, you would bless us in your word, that you would teach us, that, Lord, as we look at the events, we look at current events around us and the craziness that kind of surrounds us, help us to understand the interplay between the unseen realm, spiritual realities, and the physical realm. And how these things are intertwined, even as we saw in our scripture reading today in the book of Job. How events in heaven, when Satan accused Job, had ramifications on earth when God allowed him to touch everything that Job had. Lord, help us to understand these truths, give us insight. By your spirit, in Jesus name, Amen. So here's the reason we're doing this study. Uh, there's just a couple things that I want to draw to our attention. First one is when we were looking in John chapter eight, especially in verse 44, there in that chapter when we were studying it, Jesus was talking to the Jews of His day, and he said, "You're of your Father, the devil." And the works of your father you will do. He was from the beginning a murderer. He did not abide in the truth. And so there in John chapter 8, we talked some about the kingdom of darkness. And that kind of laid some thinking in my mind for where we're going. Also, when we get to John chapter 10 in a couple of months, when we get there, we're in chapter 9, that's what we're going to be beginning. But when we get to chapter 10, there is an interaction where Jesus quotes from this psalm that we read today, he is going to quote from verse six, and he is going to say to the Jews, David said, I said, You are God, sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die, you shall perish, and you will fall like any other prince. And Jesus is going to use that verse to talk about his deity. And so, As we study this, I hope this sets a little bit of context for what we study eventually when we get to John chapter 10, and maybe it'll whet your appetite for that, and that will help you understand it when we get to John chapter 10. Another reason is because of a question. This summer in the month of May, an individual came up to me and asked me about Psalm 82. This is the beginning of the month of May. And I knew we would be looking at this later when we got to John's Gospel, chapter 10. But honestly, I had never given much thought to Psalm 82. It had never been big on my radar. And this guy had a question about what was going on here. And and so I read it. I began to think about it. And for the last whatever months that is, since the month of May, this psalm has just been percolating in my brain. So now you get the overflow of my percolations. Okay? Okay. Also because of current events, like I already mentioned. All the darkness, all the oppression, all the confusion. Where does that come from? Why is that in our world? And then there's also some books out there. I haven't read either of these books, but nevertheless, I bet many of you have read the one. There are two well-known books that are out there right now. One is called The Return of the Gods. Have any of you seen that book? Return of the Gods by a guy named Jonathan Kahn. I think his name is Jonathan and um, I, I actually was given that book, I perused it real briefly, but I haven't read it. And the reason I didn't read it was I didn't want you, when you sit here, if you've read that book, to just hear me preaching what Jonathan Kahn said. So I haven't read it, but I probably will someday. But I know it's kind of on the bestseller list, The Return of the Gods. There's another book out there called The Unseen Realm, if you're interested in this topic. The Unseen Realm is, you know, this is more of a popular book. This is more of a scholarly work written by a guy who was a uh, doctor of uh, theology at Liberty University. His name is Michael Heiser. Michael Heiser went home to be with the Lord this year, but he wrote this book, The Unseen Realm, in which he deals with many of these things. I haven't read that book either, but this book was what really formed the question that the individual asked me about this psalm. So having said that, let's look at it. First of all, as we begin to look at the psalm, notice with me the the inscription or the ascription of the psalm. Who wrote it? It says, it is a psalm of Asaph. A psalm of Asaph. Many of the psalms were written by King David. But there is also a subset of psalms that were written by a guy named Asaph. Now, we're not going to take much time with this, but Asaph was really the worship leader of Israel who had been appointed by King David. We read about him in the book of Chronicles. And he was appointed by King David to write the hymnody or the psalms and then to preside over the temple singers. So when the temple singers sang, they were singing contemporary music, weren't they? It was contemporary to their time. It were songs that were coming off the pen of Asaph. He would take them and he would give them to the temple musicians and the temple singers, and they would sing them repeatedly, day in, day out, to accompany all of the sacrifices that were going on in Israel. Now, remember, there really weren't worship services the way we think of them in the temple complex. That happened in the synagogue. The temple complex was a place of sacrifice. Nevertheless, people would come there and would worship. People would come there and pray. And accompanying that would be the praises of Israel um, in David's day. And, of course, this is at the tabernacle because it predates Solomon's temple. But it's the tabernacle. And uh, so there was continual worship and praise going on. And uh, they were psalms that were written by various people. Now, I want to deal with this real quick, because I want to get into the meat of the message, but if you got a study Bible and you started reading about Psalm 82 while I was reading it, you will have noted there are various interpretations about what in the world is this talking about. So I want to just deal with those various interpretations real quickly, and then we'll go the direction that I believe this psalm is referring to. There is mention here on various occasions in this psalm of, notice this, small g, plural with the s, gods. Did you notice that? There is also mention, and there again, the translators make it a small d, not a large d, because we're not polytheists, there's only one true God, isn't there? Only one true God. Of a divine Counsel. God, notice what it says in verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he is holding judgment. So, what does this mean? Who are these gods, and what is this divine counsel? Now, I want to deal with this real quickly. Because I think it has bearing on our local community. Now, if we were in Chicago, Illinois, and you were preaching on this, it probably wouldn't even be on the radar, but because we're here, where we are, it ought to be on our radar. And I just want to make note of it. And that is that there is a divergent reason, uh, a divergent view then we're going to take, as Christians, about what this council is that is taught by the LDS church. Now, in no way am I trying to knock you or knock people who come from an LDS background, but I do think we should just deal with the issue up front. Very straightforward. In other words, you know, if you today... Maybe you're listening on the radio, or you're going to watch us on the internet, or maybe you're in our midst, and you come from an LDS background. I'm not bashing your belief, but I do take issue with it. And it is important that we're clear, the the LDS church's official understanding of the the person of God is very different than the historic Christian biblical explanation and understanding of who God is. One God. And so if you come from that background, I would really encourage you to investigate the scripture closely as to, to understand. Who God is in his being and how he differs from what we're going to call the gods. It's an important issue. So what I don't want us to think is, you know, what we're teaching today is, is not to be confused with the LDS belief of the divine council. Okay? Should not be confused. And I just want to draw attention to that. Now there are some interpreters who believe that Psalm 82 is kind of metaphor and it's speaking when it uses the words gods or sons of the most high the divine council it is speaking of human kings rulers or judges who rule over men and that god is holding the rulers of men accountable for the way they rule men, and he sits in judgment on them. Now, that is, that's a, what would I say, Um, a legitimate interpretation of it, and it is also a Kind of a historic interpretation, and it's within the pale of orthodoxy, okay? So some people are going to look at this psalm, and they're going to view it through that lens. That's not the lens that we're going to view it through as we study it. So if that's the view that you take of this psalm, you'll just have to hear me out, okay? You'll just have to hear me out, and maybe you won't like what I have to say. Nevertheless, what I'm going to teach and believe that what he's talking about here is that there are spirit beings that stand behind and influence earthly events in the physical realm. There's an unseen realm. Do you remember the interaction that a man named Elisha, a prophet of God, had with his servant at Dothan? When all of the armies of Assyria had come, or uh, of the king had come to take him captive? And and Elisha's servant was all getting worried because of all this army that was camped outside. And Elisha just sits there unmoved, and he's unconcerned. And finally, you know, uh, Elisha's servant is like, don't you know what's happening? They came to get you. And Elisha says, well, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And he prayed, and he said, God, open his eyes. And the servant sees around them on the mountains around Dothan An unseen host of angels who were there to protect them, but were unseen by men. So there are spirit beings, we're going to see this thread all through scripture, that stand behind and influence earthly events in the physical realm. That, I believe, is the core of what he is talking about in this psalm. So these verses describe unseen spiritual realities that stand behind physical events on earth. And so it is descriptive of God's sovereign control of the spiritual beings that are out there. But those spiritual beings are sowing seeds of confusion, oppression, and darkness. And one day, God will hold them accountable, and they, like mere men, will die, and they will be cast into the lake of fire. Nevertheless, there are unseen spiritual realities that are happening all around us all the time that we cannot see that we really are not privy to, but that have direct bearing on things that happen in our lives. Okay, so here's an overview of the psalm. Let's just look at the psalm. Let's go through it real quickly. In verse 1, we see God's sovereign position. God has taken... In that word, there's almost a violence there. He has taken it, and we're going to really tie this into Jesus Christ in the Gospels and in the book of Ephesians and Colossians, how he comes and he takes from Satan the keys of of death and of hell, and uh, he is the key of David, and he is the master, and he is above all dominion. We'll really look at that next week, but God has taken his place. In the divine council. And it is in the midst of the gods that he is holding judgment. So we see God's sovereign position. In verse 2, you see God rebuking these gods. How long will you judge unjustly? And how long will you show partiality to the wicked? And so God is rebuking the gods. In verse 3 and 4, we see God's prescribed will for the nations, for the gods. He says in verse 3, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Now, these are the things that the demons are not doing, that these gods are suppressing. They They are injuring the weak, the orphan. He says, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. All those things that God prescribes that he has rebuked them for are things that these gods are subverting the will of God in the world in regards. The next thing is, you'll notice in verse 5, you will notice the result of the gods' deceitful ploys. They, mankind, Has neither knowledge nor understanding. Men just, you know, they don't get it. Why? Because the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, they just don't see it. Where does that come from? Demonic oppression. They have neither knowledge nor understanding, they walk about in darkness. And all the foundations of the earth are shaken. So that is the result of the God's deceitful ploys. And then in verse 6 and 7, we see the announced doom of the gods. And in verse 8, we see a plea. We see the psalmist closing with a prayer. Arise, O God, judge the earth. For your inheritance is all the nations. That God is going to take them back. And in many ways, he has in the gospel but not in its consummation as when Christ returns. That's an overview of the psalm. We're going to look at that more in depth next week as we go through it. But let's just try to, you know, we're going to look at some questions. Who are these gods? Who are these gods? Where do they come from, and what do they do? That's the kind of what we want to cover today. Who are these gods that are mentioned in Psalm 82? Where do they come from, what are they doing? And then how does this affect me? Why does this matter? What's the big deal with it? Why is this important? Now, what I want to do is begin by just giving you a little bit of lesson in the word God. The Hebrew word God simply means strong one. The strong one. There are two forms of it in the Old Testament scripture. One is, this is transliteration, so we're just taking a Hebrew word and putting it in English language, is two letters, E-L. E-L. It is the masculine singular, and it forms the word God. So in the Hebrew language, the name or the word God would be, in the masculine singular, L, E-L. In the masculine plural it is the word elohim have you ever heard of the word for god elohim okay it is a plural now the context is very important in understanding it because many times and where you really notice this is in genesis chapter 1 and 2 in the beginning god created it uses the word elohim which is a plural And then you see God talking to himself. Let us make man in our image. And so it is a plural. Now, why is it plural? Because the writers of Scripture is trying to draw our attention to the reality that, yes, there's only one God, but he exists as three persons. So it is really laying a foundation for our understanding of the Trinity. But many times in Scripture when that word is used, it is not referring to the one true God, it is used to refer to what we are gonna call gods, gods. So for instance, in the English language, context always determines meaning, doesn't it? So if I say the word God, and I am referring to the one true God, I'm gonna put what at the beginning of it? A capital G, right? Were you taught that? If you're referring to the one true God, you put a capital G because it is the one true God. But if you are referring to a false God like Baal or Asherah or one of the other Canaanite deities, how do you refer to it? You would use a small g because you would not wanna confuse in your communication the one true God with a false God. But we understand that all the time in language, we refer to false gods, and we call them gods. But are there really false gods? Is there really a being or an entity out there that is Baal? No, there's not. But we refer to an entity, a spirit being... As a God who is not truly the God Baal, but is a demon who stands behind it. Let me demonstrate this in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, I'm going to put several passages together, but I want you to notice what he's saying. In verse 4, Paul is writing to the church, and he says about eating food that is offered to idols... For time, I can't give you a big explanation of that, right? But if you know anything about the Bible, you know what this issue is. There was food that was offered in temples to false deities, and then it was sold in the marketplace. And Christians are wondering, is it okay to eat that prime rib that was offered to a false god? Is that a sin? And so they have this really legitimate question. So Paul says about eating food offered to idols, what does Paul say? We know an idol is nothing. It is nothing. It's just an idol. We know an idol is nothing in the world, and there is no God but one. There's only one God. For even if there are so-called gods whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, we know we have this knowledge, there is only one God. He is the Father. All things are from Him. We exist for Him. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ. All things are through Him, and we exist through Him. So what does he say? These beings, these entities that are called gods by the nations are in essence, in reality, nothing. But Paul then says this. Notice this in chapter 10. My dear friends, flee from idolatry. Since an idol is nothing, is it good to just go and be in a temple where idols are worshiped? No, he says what? Flee it. Why? What am I saying? Food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to who? Demons. And it's not to God. So what does he say? This false God, that is nothing. Behind that false God, in that idolatrous system, there is a what? A demon who is binding men and is giving them darkness, and is holding them under its sway. So there is a demonic influence that stands behind these beings that are called gods. So what is the identity of these gods? Let's go a little bit deeper into this. First of all, he calls it a divine council. Secondly, he mentions gods in verse 1 and verse 6. And then in verse 6, he calls them sons of the Most High. Notice this link. These gods are what? These false gods are nothing. But behind those false gods, there is a what? A demon. And that demon is called a what? A son of God. It's called a son of God. Now, what does that mean? Why is he called a son of God? Well, let's go into this and think about it for a few minutes this morning. These sons of God that we see mentioned in this text and in others is it is a name that is used in scripture to describe spirit beings. Many times we generically call them what? Angels. Good angels and bad angels. But we know there are many orders and types of angels. There's archangels, there's cherubim, there's seraphim. There's all kinds of beings. You read the book of Revelation, you read the book of Ezekiel, there are beings that are described that blow the mind. These beings are not created in the image of God like we are but God created them and he calls them in scripture, sons. They are sons of God. Now let's go through some passages that bring this out. Okay, we're gonna start in Genesis six. Then we're gonna to go to Job one that was read already. And then we're gonna to go to a very important one in the book of Deuteronomy. So you follow along, Genesis six. Now I'm putting this up on the screens. You may wanna look at it in your Bible as well. Because uh, I know if you've got a study Bible, you're going to be looking at the notes on this one, right? Genesis 6. Now, there again, we could do like a whole series on this, and I get questioned about this one all the time. What in the world is this? But I want to just use it, even though we're not going to really ref- go deeply into what is happening here. I want to just use it to, distra- to demonstrate the title. Verse 1. Mankind is multiplying on the earth. Pause, hold it, listen to me. When God made man, did he fill the earth with man? He filled the earth with elk, with deer, with moose, with everything else. But he put how many people on the earth? Two, Adam and Eve. And everybody descended from them. Correct? Understand that. When God created the spirit beings, he created all of them, a set number. That's why we call them a host. They did not descend from Satan and his wife, right? They were all created as a host, a set number. Mankind, on the other hand, began to multiply on the earth. And daughters were born to them. And what happened? Now notice this. The sons of God saw the daughters of mankind and said, wow, she's a knockout. I mean, that still happens today, right? You know, men look at women and say, wow, she's a beautiful woman. But we see that there's something much more than this just descriptive, the sons of God, this isn't like a teenage boy. Because notice what's going on here. The sons of God see the daughters of mankind. They're beautiful. They take and they choose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days are now going to be 120 years. So God is going to shorten the lifespan of man. Before this, their life was what? Like in the 800s. Now, God says, whatever's happening here is so vile in the eyes of God that God is going to shorten man's life exponentially. And then he gives some more explanation of this in verse 4. The Nephilim are on the earth, both in those days and afterwards, and the sons of God come to the daughters of man, and they bear kids, and these are powerful men of old, the famous men. Now, we could go into a lot of explanations about what this is, but it's clear this is very different than anything we've ever seen. Who are these? Nephilim. Now, the first thing to note, Nephilim is a word which means the fallen ones. The fallen ones. Many times we speak of the demonic host as who? As what? Fallen beings. They are the fallen ones, and they are on the earth in those days and afterwards. Now, whatever we can say about what's going on here is God gives us this little glimpse behind the curtain of some events that are happening very shortly before God says, enough is enough. I'm going to wipe out all humanity. So whatever's been happening here and whatever's going on here, all the different explanations What is happening here is so vile in the eyes of God that God says, I'm done with it. But Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, and God has him build a boat. So let's just use that text, sons of God. Now, let's go to the book of Job. Ben read this to us. He read a big section of it, but I'm just going to draw your attention to a couple verses. One day, the sons of God present themselves... Before the Lord. One day, the sons of God come before God and present themselves to him. And who is with these sons? Satan. Satan came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Well, where did he come from? Walking around on the earth, roaming on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? But I want you to see that interaction. Who are these sons of God? Let's just say, who is it? It is clear that this is spirit beings, isn't it? They are spirit beings. Let's go another passage. Deuteronomy 32. Now, this is an intriguing one. In this chapter, let me go back because I don't want you reading that yet. In this chapter in Deuteronomy 32, children of Israel are getting ready to go in the promised land, and God is bringing his revelation to Moses to a close. And there's a great passage in 32 when God is put on the pedestal for who he is, Uh, our God is a rock, his work is perfect, all the things that Moses says of him. (coughs) And then he goes back in history and he looks at some events. And you will right away notice what this event is. When the Most High, this is God, He gave to the nations their inheritance. Stop with me. Don't read any further. Who controls the nations of men? God gave them. God gave to the nations their inheritance. He did what? He divided mankind. When he did that, that's in Genesis chapter 11 at a place called what? Tower of Babel. At that point in time, when he gave to the nations their inheritance and he divided mankind, he fixed the borders. Now, from Daniel, we can definitely discern that is geographic and it is time. Okay? The kingdom of Greece ended when God said it's done. And America will come to an end, not just when we have a bad president, but when who says so? God, he fixes the borders, geographically and extent of time. So when he did this, when he divided mankind, Tower of Babel, he fixed the borders of the people, and he did it according to what? The number of who? The sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob. What is he saying here? When God created all the nations at the Tower of Babel, he gave to each nation, according to the number of the sons of God, the angelic host, an allotment. But God did not delegate any authority over Israel to any other created being. They are who? His heritage. They are his people. Let me demonstrate this. Let's go to one other passage. We need to kind of bring this to a close. Let's go to Daniel 10, because I think this will help you understand what's happening here. Daniel is praying, and an angel, his name is Gabriel, comes to him. Oh, let's go forward in time about another 700 years, and Gabriel comes and visits who? A young woman named Mary and also her betrothed husband, Joseph. But Gabriel comes to Daniel. And Gabriel says to Daniel, I have come because of your words in your prayer. Gabriel then tells him this, the prince of the kingdom of Persia stood against me and held me up for how many days? 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, notice this kings of Persia, who are these kings of Persia, and who is this prince of the kingdom of Persia, do you think that's any earthly ruler that is fighting and holding up Gabriel, no, it's who, it's a demonic power that although there is an earthly ruler of the kingdom of Persia, there is also a spirit being whom God had given authority in Persia at the Tower of Babel, who is the spiritual ruler over that kingdom. Do you see that in that text? So there is a prince of the kingdom of Persia. He withstood me for 21 years. Days. You ever wonder why sometimes when you pray, your answer doesn't get to you immediately? It's because there is a spirit warfare happening behind the scenes that we are not privy to. That's all interplaying in what's happening on earth. And then Gabriel says this, I'm going to go back when I'm done talking to you, I'm going to go back and fight against the king or the prince of Persia. And when I go, when I leave, then who's coming? Then the prince of Greece is coming. He's coming next. He's the next spirit being that's going to usher in the kingdom, the empire of Greece. And he's coming up next. So do you see that interplay? Do you see these spirit beings and how they are affecting things on earth? Let's just kind of bring it to a close. Now, this is really interesting. In the book of Revelation, there are seven letters as a part of the book of Revelation to seven churches, aren't there? Ephesus, all these churches in Asia Minor. One of them is a church at a place called Pergamum. Now, most of us, you know, Pergamum does not figure heavy on our kind of knowledge of the ancient world. Pergamum is a city in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. It is now, you know, the ancient city is in ruins, although these things were found. In Pergamum, there was a center of pagan idolatrous worship to the pantheon of the Roman gods and the Greek gods. This temple, you see this temple? Or excuse me, not temple, this is an altar. It is called the altar of Zeus that sat at Pergamum. This has now been replicated in a museum in Germany. But it was found, that thing, the altar of Pergamum. On earth, men thought of it as the altar of Zeus, but in the book of Revelation when Jesus is writing to the church at Pergamum he does not call it the altar of Zeus he called it Satan's throne. You live where Satan's throne is. And that's a direct reference to this altar the altar of Pergamum. Now here's where it gets intriguing. In mid 1930s 30s, a guy named Albert Speer was asked by Adolf Hitler to build a rally grounds for the Nazi party in a place called Nuremberg, Germany. When he did that, you know what he used as a prototype for his speaking stand for Hitler? the altar of Zeus at Pergamum. That's what it is, it is the altar of Pergamum. Albert Speer designed it that way, and when Hitler would stand right there and would speak, he was actually speaking from the place that in the actual altar of Zeus, the high priest would stand and would sacrifice. And that is where Hitler stands. And it was all designed as a religious ceremony for the people of Egypt, or of Germany. Boy, I blew that. But that's a a combination. Now, so you think about some things here. Nazi Germany is the epitome in our mind of fanatical hatred of God's people, isn't it? And when they designed a place to rally their people, and it's actually the place where he announced from that spot right there, is where Adolf Hitler stood right here and announced the final solution to eradicate the Jews. From the place of the high priest, the altar, the throne of Satan. There's a demonic link there. Uh, This is a rally. You could see the hundreds of thousands. This is in 1937, and it was designed, it was called the the Cathedral of Lights. So that is an outdoor ceremony, and they have beams of light going straight up into the sky to create. And literally, Albert Speer was designing for Hitler a worship service. You can read the writings of what they were doing and um, Hitler stood right here, and um, in this massive worship service to Satan, really gives over the people of Germany to the destruction of God's chosen people. So, what do you see? Physical world. And yet, events that are happening in the physical world that people are walking about in darkness. Notice that, verse five, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. Most of the people in this crowd are oblivious. They're just there because it's a patriotic moment. And they do not understand that they are a ploy of Satan and that it will lead to their ultimate destruction. And most of the people in that crowd go out and they join the armed forces and they fight on the Eastern Front in Russia and they die. They die like flies. And most of them perished eternally in hell. Why? Why? Because of the deception of darkness. And we live in a day today when deception is all around us. And people don't even see it. And it is like Satan has a bull by the nose with a ring and he is leading them to their death. So what are we going to do about it? That's next week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand and to see the reality of the battle that is going on all around us. That we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against spiritual wickedness in the high places. And Lord, help us to understand what weaponry you have given to us that we might win. And that, Lord, we may be a part of you redeeming to yourself a people and calling them out of darkness and into the light. And, Father, with the psalmist Asaph, we pray, Arise, O God, judge the nations. For all the nations are your inheritance. And so, Lord, we pray, come quickly.